Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Monday, the 24th of August. In today's podcast, we have a glimpse into the workday of an infectious diseases physician caring for COVID-19 patients in Melbourne and the issues that arise when these patients are discharged back into the community and into the hands of their GPs. I will be speaking to Professor Benjamin Rogers. Once again, the latest global and local COVID-19 statistics will follow the interview. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tomorrow's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. Professor Rogers, can you please start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Thanks so much. So I'm Ben Rogers. I'm an infectious disease physician and clinical researcher at uh, Monash Health in Victoria and the Monash University School of Clinical Sciences. In this role, I'm an ID physician who looks after patients with illness in hospital and in the community, and then I dedicate some of my time to uh, clinical research, so working on designing and running clinical studies of drugs and therapies, and also observational studies and other studies of different infectious diseases. Thank you. Ben, I expect you would have seen and looked after patients with COVID-19 now in Victoria, Can you give us an insight into a typical day in the life of an infectious diseases physician? Yeah, look, I think it's fair to say that our our typical day has has changed somewhat in the last few months in Victoria. We're obviously quite busy with uh, COVID uh, around Victorian hospitals. In the southeast where I am, we're a little bit less busy than in the north of the city, but we've all got patients coming in. So we start with a video meeting with um, the ID unit and other parties in the hospital just to look at what's happened in the last 24 hours, who's come in and also what's happening in our kind of patch of patch of the neighbourhood, nursing homes that might have trouble, um, other issues, anything that might be going on with our laboratory. Um, and then really from there, it, it depends what my plan is for the day. Some days I'll be on clinical and, and looking after patients. Uh, other days I'll be at my desk, you know, trying to keep moving on some of this research or looking at patients for clinical trials and various other things. Um, And other days I'll be at home looking after the kids. How does the patient get classified as requiring hospital care for COVID-19? That's that's a really good question and something that is in in a way evolving. I guess at the moment, as well as having patients in hospital and out of hospital, we also have a group sometimes that are managed in the community with close monitoring or a hospital in the home type system. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, uh, there's two kind of, I guess there's two two important pathways in this, one of which is the clinical, you know, if a patient is uh, hypoxic or unwell or unable to maintain their hydration or care for themselves, then mm-hmm. they'll come into hospital. And the other of which is uh, social. And, you know, COVID is a new disease with a, 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 
population and we are admitting patients uh, who might not typically need admission for clinical reasons uh, to support them whilst the social circumstance is sorted out or in the setting of residential aged care facilities um, mm. so the, the facility can be you know decamped and, and managed. What are some of these social situations that are different from say an ordinary pre-COVID day? Really they often tend to tend to sit around who's at home. Patients with COVID have to have to stay at home and isolate. Some patients don't have the facility to do that at home depending on what their home circumstances like. And some patients, even if they do have that facility, you know, they don't have the assistance they require to stay at home, so to supply, you know, food and other care. And in those settings, those patients typically come into hospital for a shorter period of time whilst uh, the hospital in conjunction with the Department of Health makes alternative arrangements rather than having a, a prolonged stay. Now, what are some of the various presentations of COVID-19 that you have seen in hospital there? It's really something that we are learning as we go along. You know, there's increasing literature coming out about this, but I guess I would say my, my real learning in this has been how protein and diverse the presentations of COVID are. Mm -hmm. the, the, the typical presentation that we think of, you know, with fever and respiratory illness, we see a lot of. But we've had patients, for instance, that have come in with uh, syncope as their major symptom of COVID. We've had a number of patients that have come in with um, chest pain or pleuritic pain as their primary presentation. Mm -hmm. And also older patients that have come in with delirium or confusion and occasional other neurological presentations as well. So uh, as this has really progressed on COVID in Victoria, we've really increasingly widened our net and our experience of when we consider COVID as a diagnosis. Have you seen any other viruses that might do anything like that or is this completely unique? COVID is pretty unique but in infectious diseases I guess we, we you know see flu has a variety of presentations you know including myocarditis and neurological presentations and you know we have a number of classical infections like for instance tuberculosis and HIV where we really consider a vast, vast number of different symptoms are possible, mm. um, you know, presentation. So it kind of falls into that category. What generally happens to a patient in hospital? I mean, who's sick, not for social purposes, you know, they've mm. been admitted, but they're not in ICU and they're not being ventilated. What treatments do they receive? So a patient that comes in in that setting, I guess the most important treatment they receive is supportive care. Um, and we've learned a lot about supportive care over the last few months. So care about hydration status, thromboprophylaxis, mm -hmm. nutritional care, psychological care. And for the vast majority of patients, uh, that is all they will need for, mm -hmm. for recovery from their COVID. Mm -hmm. If patients are sicker than that, um, typically it would be a patient who is hypoxic, so requiring oxygen support. Uh, we now use uh, two potential disease-modifying therapies, one of which is dexamethasone, and the other of which is the antiviral remdesivir. Are all patients in hospital but not in ICU given heparin or something else to stop clots? So thromboprophylaxis is an important part of, of care of COVID patients and there's quite a bit of work and research going on at the moment about what the optimal thromboprophylaxis uh, in that setting is. Usually heparin, nothing oral? Typically, they'd be given, in our setting, low molecular weight heparin, so um, anoxaparin. How quickly do these patients deteriorate? I mean, these are patients in a normal hospital ward. 
not requiring ventilation, how quickly can they go south? COVID, when patients are deteriorating, it, it's, it tends to be relatively rapid, but it's not hyperacute. You know, it's not like a cerebrovascular accident or a cardiac arrest that's sudden. Um, mm -hmm. When we see patients, we might watch them over 12 or 24 hours, and what we'd often see is that they have a gradually increasing oxygen requirement and increasing tachypnea, or they're getting uh, fatigued with, you know, with the breathing and are going to require increased respiratory support. Uh, we also, there are a number of, of markers we now understand on, on blood tests, biochemical markers that we, we watch as well, like C-reactive protein, uh, D-dimer and ferritin, and we know when they're rising, that's a, a suggestion of deterioration as well. When do you know a patient needs ventilation? And if they need a ventil ventilator, are they awake? So the, the patients that would typically need uh, respiratory support above what can be provided on a, on a ward or in a ward setting are those that, um, whose oxygen requirements are exceeding what we can deliver. And on a ward, we can safely give somewhere between four and six litres of oxygen. And beyond that, in our setting, we move the patient to a, a critical care setting or patients, as I said, that are fatiguing from a, a respiratory perspective or have other indications that they're worsening. Yeah, it was whether you leave them awake or whether or not they are actually in an induced coma or sedated. So so the the ICU care of COVID is, is again, a, a subspecialised area, which isn't my specialty, but there's been a lot of knowledge gain in that. A lot of patients that require respiratory support uh, will only require non-invasive ventilation, uh, which is you know, similar to, to the CPAP that people get for obstructive sleep apnea, but a yeah. little bit more high-tech. Mm -hmm. And for that, they'll be awake. But if they require uh, intubation and mechanical ventilation, then they uh, will need some form of sedation to make it tolerable and comfortable. And you've mentioned that these patients would be given dexamethasone and remdesivir. Anything else they might need? Uh, in terms of disease-modifying therapies, they're, they're the two that we have available. Occasionally, we will treat patients if we're concerned about a secondary bacterial infection and uh, treat them, you know, for other comorbidities they have. And typically, in this patient, in the patients that get unwell, you know, their other comorbidities can become problematic. You know, their diabetes can become unstable. Their other pre-existing diseases may flare or require attention as well. And that brings me to my point, which is, what are the most complex and challenging patients for you? Uh, I know they have comorbidities, but which comorbidity presents the biggest challenges to all of you? I think it's really the the sum total of comorbidities that presents the challenge mm -hmm. uh, in mm -hmm. in this patient group. It's the the older patients, the patients with you know multiple morbidities, diabetes, renal disease, cardiac disease, lung disease that may all be interacting that really really present the biggest challenge. We, we do have occasional younger patients uh, that become unwell as well, um, but they tend to be kind of more more focused, kind of single organ failures rather than multi-organ. What's the story behind hyperglycemia and diabetes with in, and the increased mortality rates? That's a good question, and I'm probably not the, the best placed to answer that. Mm -hmm. um, there's obviously a lot of work going on on it, and there is a relationship between diabetes and COVID outcomes and mortality. Apart from respiratory failure, what are the other causes of death that you've encountered from COVID-19? 
we see patients that get critically unwell with COVID, in addition to the ARDS and the, the primary kind of pulmonary organ failure, patients often get an acute kidney injury and they uh, proceed to the point where they need renal replacement therapy, hemofiltration or dialysis. Uh, we have patients that have a myocarditis and, and cardiac involvement of their COVID as well, and mm-hmm. occasional patients with neurological and other involvement. Have you seen anyone with a full-blown stroke or anything like that? Uh, personally, I haven't seen anyone with that, but all of those presentations are described. You know, it really is that pathology is protean. In the Victorian experience, Ben, what is the mortality rate at the moment? That, that's a really good question, and if you look on on raw figures of mortality uh, mm-hmm. in Victoria, you know, I think we've had about seventeen and a half thousand cases, and tragically about three hundred and fifty deaths. And mm-hmm. so the mortality rates are, are, would work out to a few percent, um, but it really mortality is really very much about the individual patient rather than the population, and the the risk of of, of dying is so different for patients based on age and comorbidity. If you were looking at, for instance, a, 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 an elderly person who, who you know, was 80 year, years or older, mm-hmm. you know, their risk of mortality with illness would be somewhere between 10 and 20%, even if they were otherwise relatively well. Whereas if you're looking at, at you know, younger patients, 20s, 30s, 40s, they have a very low risk of mortality. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if we, if we look at the data, you know, out of Australia, you know, we see that even in patients that get sick enough to go to um, to go to ICU, in fact, the, the mortality rate is only about 15% or, or 20% if they require mechanical ventilation. So it, it's kind of, it's a moving feast in a way. And mm-hmm. really, when I'm talking about the illness with a, a patient or a family, it needs to be about that particular situation rather than general um, numbers. Relevant to all of us outside in the community beds, what are the significant morbidities that patients are left with upon discharge that you have seen? That, that's a really good question and, and again something that we're learning about as things go along. Uh, when, I, when I think about that, I, I think about it in kind of three general headings or, or spheres. You know, there's kind of a, a, a general considerations basket which I think of as applicable to all patients with COVID which is, you know, really about the, the kind of the sequelae and the things that we commonly see and we can, we can talk about them in some more detail. Um, and, and also, you know, uh, really extrapolating our experience for, from other complicated and severe infections. The second kind of group of sequelae, I think we kind of need to think about a, a particular consideration to the patient. And that comes back to which, you know, what type of disease they had, which organs were involved, and mm-hmm. you know what actually happened to them with their COVID. And the the third thing, which I think is really important in this setting, are, are the psychosocial considerations, which are you know just as important for the patient and for the community as any of the physiological or, or you know other things that we've talked about. You want to go into some details of the first one? Yeah. So I guess we know in terms of general considerations that the speed of your recovery from COVID uh, really depends on the severity of your illness. Some of the data about suggests that, that people with, you know, a, a pretty mild illness might, you know, recover in the space of, of, of two to three weeks, but people with a lot more severe illness will take a lot longer to recover. You know, it might be, it might be in the order of, of months.
typically uh, symptoms that people are experiencing, you know, post-recovery or, or, or peri-recovery are things like ongoing fatigue, number of patients report ongoing dyspnea and occasional things like chest pain uh, or joint pains, occasionally cough as well. The things that we wouldn't typically expect to see in, in the recovery phase are those acute infective symptoms, so, you know, the, the, the fevers and the rigors and, and things like that. Are there evidence in Victoria of people getting a second infection? I mean, I've heard of it before. Any experience in Australia with that? Uh, it's a very, it's a very evolving area and the immunity that one infection of COVID gives you from later infections and how long that lasts for is mm -hmm. something that we really don't understand uh, very well at the moment. And before we leave the hospital situation, uh, I just need to ask about, I guess, the morale of the frontline uh, health professionals. I mean, they're putting their bodies to, on the line. What's the morale like? I think it's been tough for all healthcare workers in Victoria, as it's been tough for you know, all, the, all the residents of Victoria who are in lockdown and really living a very different life at the moment. In our, in our hospital setting, you know, we've had a lot of a lot of support and I think the morale is reasonably holding up and you know really there have been some some positive things about this for us as well we've kind of as a group I think we've had a lot more um, broader interaction I've got to know a lot of people in the hospital that I didn't know before COVID mm -hmm. and that's been a really positive part of it. Ben, I now want to look at the discharge process and the discharge protocol this is our for recovered uh, COVID-19 patients, how are GPs and other health professionals informed of an impending discharge of a COVID-19 patient? So if a patient's uh, hospitalised in Victoria, and that may be different in different states, uh, the decision to discharge the patient is made uh, by the hospital in conjunction uh, with the Department of Health. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, direct communication with them Mm -hmm. and the discharge is made on clinical grounds by us and then on public health grounds by them about whether they have a, a safe place to return to and whether they need to continue isolating afterwards. In terms of GP notification, at the moment, my understanding is that there's no uh, particular unique process for COVID, so mm -hmm. the notification would be through the typical channels of a discharge summary and a call from the treating team, but there is work going on in Victoria at the moment to try and streamline and, and improve the, the communication in this setting. And hopefully that will really bring GPs into the loop a lot more uh, with the patients who end up treated in hospital with COVID. As we know, Ben, many of the patients must be leaving hospital with an active inflammation of an organ, a myocarditis or something. And if GPs are actually not aware that that particular patient has an ongoing issue or what we need to do for that patient because they have an issue, that could leave GPs really in a bit of a lurch, in a hard place. Is there any help given to them in this area? You raise a really important point, talking about those particular situations and not, you know, every every COVID illness is different and for a GP to really deliver the best care to a patient after they've been hospitalised, they need to understand the, the nuance of exactly what the, the patient's COVID illness was, mm. whether it was, mm. you know, respiratory primarily or cardiac or a 
and other issues with it as well. Hopefully that information should come through on the, the discharge paperwork from the hospital. And really I would encourage GPs if that paperwork is limited mm -hmm. uh, to contact you know the, the treating team and really the sooner the better while the people who treated the patient are still around and really yeah. try and get a better sense of what was going on for the patient in hospital. Am I getting a sense, Ben, that hospitals at the moment are not having any specific uh, COVID-19 clinics, like you don't have a COVID clinic in the cardiolo cardiology outpatients for follow-ups or respiratory clinics? It's not as if they've got a um, an appointment made already by the time they leave. Each health service is doing things a little bit differently. Uh, some health services are organising dedicated COVID follow-up clinics. Mm -hmm. uh, some health services are using their, their pre-existing clinic structure to, to follow up COVID patients. So, mm -hmm. you know, for instance, we can bring our patients back to the infectious disease clinic and if we need assistance from the respiratory or the cardiologists, we'll use the existing channels for that. I guess I'm only really concerned for GPs and other health professionals out there, Ben, and really wondering what kind of resources or helplines do they have in helping them manage COVID recovered patients? So there's a lot of really good resources online. Most of the state and the federal departments of health have large numbers of resources online, although it is sometimes a little bit tricky to navigate to the right spot um, in the website to find them. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some very uh, useful resources from the American Centers for Disease Control and um, other overseas kind of reputable sites. And the national, um, you know, evidence-based COVID guidelines mm -hmm. are a very good, you know, useful piece of information on a large number of different bits of COVID care and they're constantly evolving. I'm just also wondering, has there been a reach out by the hospitals to local GPs or to the uh, primary health networks in trying to smooth out and make seamless the discharge, the follow-ups, or are they, as you said, still a case-by-case -case scenario and that there's no overarching uh, work to try and make this a seamless process? So I think at the moment it's the moving feast and there certainly is quite a bit of work in Victoria about, you know, really integrating that process of, of mm. care for COVID patients. But at the moment, it's in a transition from, you know, our model that we've used for other diseases mm -hmm. to something that's going to be more suited to COVID and more patient-focused and, I guess, with less friction for all, all the people involved. I'm just hoping, then uh, maybe you are the one to talk to. It just seems as if it's one of the lessons we have learned on how to manage pandemics is, um, is the post-hospital care and how to make that seamless and actually incorporate that into the next pandemic plan so that uh, GPs are not left uh, scratching their heads or worried about missing things. I really agree with that. And the, the one thing I guess I would come, come back to to reassure GPs is that whilst the etiology is a bit unfamiliar in, in COVID, a lot of the conditions that patients will come in with are those conditions that GPs are really the best equipped in the community to manage. Ben, do you have any words of wisdom, any practice tips or advice for GPs and health professionals who will be seeing COVID-19 recovered patients 
probably for the first time. Yeah, good good question. And I guess my my first bit of advice is is, is in a way what I just said, which is really to reassure GPs that whilst COVID is a new disease, a lot of what patients will present with um, are the things that they're very well equipped to manage. You know, fatigue after illness, uh, various different end organ effects, whether it's mm-hmm. you know kidney, cardiac, or pulmonary. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just really a bit of reassurance that that what you know about the lungs uh, still applies to COVID. The, the other things I would say about the, you know, the recovery after COVID, and this really comes from experience in other infections, is that I always reassure patients that a recovery from a, from a severe illness doesn't happen any quicker than the illness itself. So if you've been laid up for two or three weeks you know, mm-hmm. with a severe COVID illness, you can't expect all of a sudden to, to jump up quickly and be back to where you were a few days later. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I used to include myself in young people, but especially I find for, for the, the younger patients that they really expect to just bounce back incredibly quickly, and that's not always the case. The, the second thing I, I often talk with patients about along the same setting is that in, in these recoveries, you need to think about uh, your recovery in a time frame of weeks rather than days. You know, in any given week, you might have some better days and some worse days. But mm-hmm. what you're really looking for is to make sure that last week um, to this week you've improved and between this week and next week you've improved. Now, I'm running out of questions here for you, Ben. I'm just wondering whether I have missed any important issues. Um, that yeah, I guess I guess one thing I would, would say that might be helpful is that uh, in these patients that are coming in with a, a variety of symptoms after COVID, I, I try and avoid uh, extensive investigation unless there really is a, a kind of a red flag concerning symptom. You know, I think it's really important to let these things run their natural course and, and see how they go over time rather than diving in and investigating these things because certainly you may find abnormalities or you may find things that are a little bit unclear that will just prompt, you know, more worrying investigation. Mm-hmm. Whereas if, mm-hmm. if you are able to wait to, you know, and observe the patient and work with the patient, um, you might find that these things result by themselves. I think the, the other really important thing which really comes out of general experience in infectious diseases is, you know, on the psychosocial side as well. And, you know, in an infectious diseases clinic, it's not uncommon that I'll see a patient three or, or six months after a, a severe illness or infection mm-hmm. and they'll turn to me and say, can I see my grandchildren now? Is there a chance I'm going to make them sick? And, you know, that really upsets me because most often with these patients, they've never been infectious to their grandchildren or if they have, it's only been for a very short period of time. And uh, the same is happening with COVID and our role as, as um, healthcare providers, I think, is to really give very clear and specific advice to patients about when they are infectious and also when they're not infectious to really free them from that worry and allow them to, to you know, do those other things that they need to do. Now, to be very clear, what are the criteria for GPs to know so we can tell a patient with confidence that they're no longer infectious? I think it's important to say that those criteria have changed over time and those criteria specified by the uh, Department of Health uh, in whatever region you're working in. So in Victoria at the moment, it's uh, greater than 10 days after the onset of illness and mm-hmm. symptom-free for three days. 
but that may change and that may vary by jurisdiction. And no need for repeated tests to be negative? At the moment, no. Well, Ben, I am just really thankful for you giving up your precious time to inform and teach us. It's really deeply appreciated. Uh, thanks. Look, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Now for the global and local COVID-19 statistics. From the John Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Centre, we find that the global COVID-19 cases has exceeded 23.3 million. The USA has nearly 5.7 million cases. Brazil nearly 3.6 million. India has exceeded a new grim milestone reporting more than 3 million cases. Russia had more than 954,000. South Africa just on 610,000. And Peru with more than 585,000 cases. Global COVID-19 deaths has also exceeded a new and grim milestone with 806,630 deaths. With the USA recording nearly 177,000 deaths, Brazil more than 114,000, Mexico more than 60,000, India with more than 56,700 and the UK with more than 41,500 deaths. Australia has recorded 24,741 cases of COVID-19, including 517 deaths. Victoria recorded 116 new cases and 15 deaths in the past day. We can now be confident these numbers will be crushed in the coming weeks. There were more than 550 patients in hospital as of yesterday, but only 21 were being ventilated and only 11 in the ICU. This could mean that the daily death rates in Victoria will start to fall in the coming days. New South Wales recorded three new locally acquired cases of COVID-19. Two are in hotel quarantine and one has a known source. More than 2 million tests have been performed in New South Wales and that is a fantastic effort on the part of the community and our health staff who are actually doing these tests. As long as we keep this high rate of testing in New South Wales, we should be able to identify little spot fires and not let a large burden of community transmission grow without our knowledge. Let us continue to encourage our patients to keep safe, to obey the restrictions and to get tested even with the milder symptoms and to stay home till the results are reported as negative. Queensland has reported one new case of COVID-19 and this is the fifth day that new cases have been identified in the past week. Like New South Wales, it is essential for all patients with the mildest symptoms to get tested. Have a good and safe day. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tomorrow's webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au.
You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.